Well, as Pastor Liz reminded us, we're quickly approaching Easter, and often you'll see large chocolate candies available to you at stores as a result that you can buy for your kids, or you can keep them for yourself if you want, giant chocolate eggs and chocolate bunnies. And once in a while, you'll even see a chocolate cross. Have any of you ever seen that? That's got to be like my least favorite thing in the world. Of all the, of all the ways that culture like co-ops the sacred holidays, that's like the worst. I think I'm always dumbfounded by that because if you have any idea what the cross is, why would you want to chocolate one and why in the world would you want to eat it? I'm pretty sure that's not what Jesus meant when he said that he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And it's just kind of a strange part of it. But the disappointing part about all of these confections is that if you buy them, you'll often find that you've saved them for just the right moment, and then when you bite into them, they are hollow. That chocolate bunny that you've hid for your ki- from your kids for weeks so that they don't find it and bite into it, it's hollow when you bite into it. It's kind of like when you go to the donut shop and you want a, a jelly donut and you get it and you take that first bite or maybe you like Boston cream. I know we have some Boston cream fans here. And you take that first bite and it's empty. And the second bite, nothing. Third bite, still empty. And finally, you get to the last bite, and there's like a teaspoon of Boston cream or of jelly in your jelly donut, and it just ruins it for you. It's pretty disappointing, isn't it? When you're expecting something that isn't there. And that's really what pride does to people and to the church. We look pretty good on the outside, or at least we think that we look good. We look impressive, we look desirable, but if you dig in a bit, if you peel back the surface a little bit, it doesn't look so good. We think that we have it all together, but after a few bites, our pride proves empty, especially of the substance that should be there in Christians and in the church. In mid-February, we had a a service where the Holy Spirit kind of changed things a little bit. We had an altar call in the middle of the service, and I felt led to speak from Revelation 3, 14 to 22, where Jesus warns the church of Laodicea about their lukewarmness and their apathetic Christianity. Revelation 3, 17 to 18 helps identify the problem that was going on in that church. It says, and Jesus is speaking to the church, he says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And this is a lot like what we're going to see today in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The church in Corinth was puffed up. They were prideful. They thought that they had everything that they needed, but They were hollow on the inside. Jesus said to them in in Laodicea, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. And I think that's the same thing that he was saying to the church in Corinth And I think he says it to us as well. He's eager to come in. He's eager to fill the emptiness with his presence and to place the mark of his character and of his kingdom on us. But if we already think we're full, that we have no need, if we're self-satisfied, if we're full of ourselves, then we'll refuse and be empty of him. 
Pride promotes division, and it prevents us from experiencing Jesus' presence. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we see a warning against pride, or what Paul calls being puffed up, like a disappointing chocolate or a, or a Boston cream donut that looks good on the outside, but is hollow and empty on the inside. Verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 4 says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. You should not be puffed up. And 1 Corinthians chapter 4 describes why, and at the same time, it provides some of the symptoms of pride that can help us to identify it in ourselves. It teaches us that Pride makes you judgy, causes you to disdain God's grace, makes you like the world, not like Jesus, and fills you with hot air rather than effectiveness. You should not be puffed up. The first reason Paul gives is because pride makes you judgy. Since the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, the apostle has been addressing division in the church, division between himself and factions in the church, and divisions that were taking place within the church. The church was divided over leadership, with some preferring one leader over another leader, and they were using worldly standards to judge one another, to judge ministers, and they were using styles like rhetoric, and and, uh, they were using uh, issues of image and what they thought about the image of a minister to judge those people and to place a false standard. And in chapter three, Paul said that he and Apollos and any other minister were servants of God that he used to help bring the gospel to them. And now in chapter four, he further clarifies what he meant so that they can understand how it should affect their pride. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, one through five, this is how one should regard us, apostles and Apollos, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God." Paul, Apollos, and church leaders in general, they were servants, Paul says, and they are servants. They're servants of Christ, which means that they ultimately answer to Christ. And he says they're stewards or they're caretakers of the mysteries of God. Paul doesn't mean here the special revelation that they'd gotten from God. What Paul means is that God's mystery is revealed through the cross of Jesus Christ. God has revealed his plan of salvation through his son Jesus. And through Jesus, we understand what God was working toward in the Old Testament. And the mystery is that the apostles and leaders in the church were applying the cross of Christ to the New Testament believers, to the church, helping them to understand how should Jesus affect my life and make my life look. That's what Paul means by the mystery of Christ. It's the apostolic witness of the life and death of Jesus as seen through the Old Testament and applied in the New Testament. And the job of a minister or a leader in the church is first and foremost the promotion and application of that gospel. And we can see this in verse 2 because Paul says the criterion that should be used for judging church leaders, or for at least church leaders judging themselves, is that they be found 
faithful. As Gordon Fee puts it, they must be worthy of the trust that has been placed in them. And this led Paul to a stunning freedom in his own life. Notice how it was kind of a slight for him to say, it's a small thing for me to be judged by you. It's kind of like saying, I don't really put much stock in what you think of me. I don't care too much how you view me. He was not concerned by their judgments. And he wasn't concerned by the judgments of any human. He says, any human court. And the phrase human court is a translation of the Greek word that usually means day, or it it denotes a particular time. And its use here is similar to a phrase we sometimes use, which is, uh, you have your day in court. And it was even used in the Old Testament to talk about the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. So he's talking about the day of of being judged, and he's saying, I don't think that day is now to be judged by you, but I live my life knowing I will be judged by another. He was emphasizing that his life and his worth were not ultimately judged by them and not even by his own conscience. Think about what he says there. He says, I do not even judge myself, not that that acquits me, but I know I will be judged by God And this is at first a stunning realization. I will be judged not by human standards, but I will be judged by a perfect judge, by God. And that could strike fear in our hearts. And if we don't know Jesus, it should strike fear in our hearts. But if you do know Jesus, this is a liberating thing. It can free you from so much in life that you think you're supposed to live up to a standard of someone else's evaluation. Because for a believer in Jesus to understand I will be judged not by what people think of me, but by what the Lord thinks of me is liberating because there is a day in court coming for you when you will stand before that judge and you will not be judged based on what you have done, based on the worldly standards or your abilities or what anybody else thinks of you, but you will be judged based on whether you received God's grace through Jesus and were faithful to live in that grace. That's it, that you'll be judged based on walking with Christ and in the meantime, There are going to be many, many people who judge you, and as a result of their judgment, you will be tempted to judge yourself. Our world does this all the time, doesn't it? Sometimes it even sneaks into the church, where we're handed standards by which to judge our lives, and we're told, this is how a worthwhile life looks. This is how a full life should look. You'll be given standards and expectations by which to measure yourself, and the world will hand you expectations, and they usually have to do with one of several things, that your values should, surround, should be around wealth and greed, or maybe around pride and your prestige, or around pleasure and how much you can enjoy yourself, or maybe around your sexuality and your sexual identity, and this is how you should judge your life. Your life is all about these things, and you'll only ever be fulfilled and happy if you live up to the world's standards regarding these things. It will hand you identities based on your sexuality and tell you that you can't be fulfilled unless you live your life based on how you feel on the inside, but there's a problem with that, and the problem is this, that All of us know that we have a problem of pride in our lives. 
That we either think too highly of ourselves and therefore look down on others, or we think too highly of ourselves and therefore we think we should be better than we are and so we look down on ourselves. Either way, it's pride because we believe that we should be something more than we are, that we deserve more than we have, that we are greater than we actually are, and we have no perspective of how God sees us if we're not in him and we don't know Jesus. And what that leads to, as we already said, is a life where you can make the exterior look good, but inside you're empty. And if the world is telling you, live based on how you feel, then you will chase the emptiness of fleeting feelings to be the definition of your life and your fulfillment for your entire life. Or you'll use the standards that they hand you about wealth or about pride, about sexuality, and you'll try to build your life on those things only to find that it doesn't take a day or two until those standards change slightly and suddenly what you thought made you measure up makes you actually be the subject of judgment in the world. And so you'll continually be trying to live your life based on the world's standards and it will not work for you. And all of these expectations and standards and identities will leave you puffed up, perhaps, but they'll also leave you empty. But God has made a way for you to be free of those judgments, the ones that you hear coming from the world on the outside, and the ones that maybe you sometimes hear in your own mind. You give your life to Jesus, trust his grace, and you let him be the judge. The Apostle Paul put it this way, he celebrates that freedom in Romans 8, uh, uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 1 where he says, there is therefore now no condemnation or no guilty verdict for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I want to encourage you this morning, if you are trapped in the judgments of the world, if you're afraid about what people will think of you, if you don't live up to their standards, their sinful standards based on greed, if you don't affirm a particular kind of sexual identity that leaves you feeling broken, or if you're stuck in your own head, always worried about whether you measure up, whether you're going to be good enough, listen to the voice of the Apostle Paul, an apostle whose heart had been set free by Jesus. There's freedom for you but it doesn't come by chasing the standards of the world. It comes by knowing that there is one judge who will judge you. His opinion is the only one that matters and he's already made a way for you to be right with him through his son Jesus. And so if you'll put your faith in him, your life will no longer be founded on the shifting sands of the standards the world holds over you, but it will be founded on a standard that does not change, on the cross of Jesus Christ and the the gift he gave you when he died for your sin. And you will be free. You don't have to live a life hollowed out by pride because you're afraid of what others think of you or even afraid of how you judge yourself. You don't have to live a life of of hollowness because of the pride of chasing standards in the world. God is your judge, but he is a judge who sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you so that you can know his grace and his mercy. And Paul took this freedom that he had in Jesus knowing that it was a small thing for him to be judged by their opinions because he knew their opinions weren't what counted at all. And he began to apply it to them and about how they should change how they were judging. He applied this to the Corinthians and he said they should stop passing judgment before the day 
of God's judgment before the Lord's day. It didn't mean that they shouldn't discern the difference between right and wrong or that they shouldn't be able to settle disputes between people in the church or recognize false teaching and judge it to be incorrect or even that they shouldn't correct sin in the church and bring church discipline. These are all things that Paul addresses later in the book, and and he says they should do those things, but what he means is that they should stop judging with the standards of the world. They were judging by the standards of today, and Paul lived by the standards of God's day, the ultimate day of judgment, when the opinion of him who really matters, of God, will be revealed. They should stop assuming they knew the motives and what was happening in people's hearts is what Paul says. We should discern right and wrong. We should reject false teaching that is not good. And we should be careful to correct sin. But we should do it in love and not in pride. Because pride doesn't correct people for their good. Pride makes you judgmental or we might say judgy. You ever met a judgy person? You've met a judgy person, right? You know they're judgy because you can't do enough to satisfy them. It's not a person that recognizes right or wrong or has discernment. They sometimes like to label themselves that way. But they just think the world should rotate around their opinions and what they like. And that person is measuring you based on their own preferences that have been shaped by the world. And I don't just mean things that we recognize immediately as worldly, like crass sexuality or dirty language, things that are obvious in the Christian culture. I mean that these people judge you based on what they think a Christian or a minister should look like and act like and sound like with no grace in their opinions. They judge on external appearances. They judge based on how polished a person appears. They judge based on their preferences shaped by the culture they live in and not shaped by the Lord. Sometimes pride causes young people to judge those who are older, judge them as outdated or incapable or unimportant, primarily based on their own preferences and style. Sometimes pride causes older people to judge the young as immature and insecure or insincere without even knowing them or understanding what they really desire, but just based on differences in opinion and style. Pride causes us to judge people from other cultures with our culture rather than through the lens of the cross. Pride causes us to judge people based on how we would like to be perceived rather than how God perceives us through the cross. And pride leaves us divided, and it also leaves us empty. Are you judgy? Is your first instinct to criticize brothers and sisters in Christ that aren't like you? Do you frequently complain about people, not based on uh, something that's actually wrong, a sin in their life, but you just complain because there's just something you don't like? Do you try to gather people around you that will flatter you and also take the same opinion about you as things that you don't enjoy or like? These are warning signs that you're judging based on pride and your opinions have been shaped by the world and not by the cross. And I want to encourage you to not go down that empty and divisive road. Let God be the judge and experience the freedom of becoming a humble servant and honoring him and allowing him to be the judge of his other servants as well. You should not be puffed up because pride makes you judgy, but pride also disdains grace. 
The gospel is the good news about God's grace given to us through Jesus. This was the gospel that Paul preached everywhere that he went, emphasizing the grace of God, the freedom of the gift of God. And he summarizes it well in a letter that he wrote to the Ephesian church. In Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice that it's not just salvation that is a gift of God, but everything that comes after salvation, any work that flows from your salvation is also a gift of God's grace as well. In other words, the life of a Christian is completely a life of grace. It all comes from the grace of God, but the Corinthians were puffed up, which demonstrated that they weren't living from grace, but from their own pride. 1 Corinthians 4, 6-7 says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So Paul's using him and Apollos here as examples to teach the Corinthians how they should view ministers, how they should view leaders, how they should view themselves and one another. He says not to go beyond what was written. He just means the application of the scriptures through Jesus that they had taught them in the church. And the main point of this was so that they wouldn't be puffed up in arrogance and have factions in their church. And the reason that they shouldn't be puffed up and divided was because He says, you're all the same. He didn't mean that they all had the same gifts, same opinions, same preferences. What he means is the source of those gifts was all the same. It means that all those gifts came from God and that they were really gifts. I'm sure you've heard people in the world talk about their talents and sometimes they'll even use the word gift to talk about a talent, right? So they'll say, that young man is really gifted at basketball, or that young woman is really gifted on the piano. And they'll use that terminology, but then they will turn around and they'll grow prideful about their abilities. Or they'll treat their ability as if it belongs to them, it is possessed by them. In other words, they call it a gift, but they don't act as if it's a gift. And I wonder if sometimes worldly ideas about gifting ever infect the church. We talk as if we are gifted by God, but we act as if we own that gift. The author Gordon Fee says, the fall has given us all too high a view of ourselves with a correspondingly low view of others. Instead of offering humble thanksgiving for gifts received, the Corinthians have allowed the gifts to become a sign of status and a source of dissension. With these questions then, Paul is trying to give them perspective. What do you have that you did not receive? One of the things that I like to remind my kids of is that I provide basically everything for them. When they start to complain a little bit, when they start to to whine that they've been asked to do something, and they say, well, can I have some money to do it? I have a dad speech for that moment. I'm ready. I'm prepared. I've given it multiple times. And it goes something like this. Who paid for the food you just ate off that plate I asked you to wash? 
Who paid for the plate you just ate off and the silverware you used to eat it? Who paid for the bed you slept in last night and the clothes you wore to bed? That's right. If I remember correctly, it wasn't you. It was me. So no, I'm not paying you to help with the dishes. Right? That's my dad's speech. You probably have used it too if you're a mom or a dad. And that's what Paul is saying here. What do you have that God did not provide for you? What in your life do you dare claim that this is not from God, this is of me? Now, depending on what culture you grew up in, there are certain cultures, and ours is one of them in America, that has a very much pull yourself up by your bootstraps, self-made man, self-made woman culture. And the work ethic may be good, but the attitude that often accompanies it is arrogant. Because what the scripture teaches us is that none of us are made on our own. What do you have that you did not receive from God? Which of us wants to raise his or her hand and say, I did this on my own? Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 2 again. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, that we might do good works that he prepared for us beforehand. What of your life did you do and plan and deserve? The Apostle Paul says, nothing. Neither your own salvation, nor the works that flow from that salvation, nor the gifts you use to accomplish them. You're God's workmanship. And he prepared those works beforehand that you ought to walk in them. And so, none of us has the right to say, this gift is mine, this gift belongs to me. Perhaps the best way to apply this is to ask ourselves this. How's your Thanksgiving? Not your holiday, not like your turkey game, how well did that turn out? But I mean, how is your attitude of gratitude toward the Lord, and how is that affecting how you treat other people? One of the values we have as a staff at the church and value as a church is that we want to have an atmosphere, a culture of thanksgiving, giving thanks to God. And one of the ways we sometimes express that is that before you complain, give thanks, because giving thanks will often temper your tantrum, right? You're often about ready to throw a temper tantrum and complain about something, but if you'll pause and give thanks, often it will change how you're thinking about the situation and you'll realize, ah, actually God has given me so much to be thankful for in this circumstance, and I need to respond out of thanksgiving and not throw a tantrum because I think I'm owed something or I deserve something from others. Before complaining, give thanks. Giving thanks to God will restore the proper perspective and prevent you from boasting, prevent you from being puffed up about your gifts and your spirituality and whatever else you think is yours because you'll remember this didn't come from me. It came from God and it belongs to him. And if you can stop that pride from welling up, you'll also stop the division that comes from pride and you won't disdain the grace of God because pride is to disdain God's grace, isn't it? Pride is to say of something God has given you, you didn't actually give that to me, God. I got that for myself. So I deserve to use it how I want to use it. But if we recognize God's grace, we say, everything I am, everything I have, comes from the grace of God. With an attitude of thanksgiving, I'm gonna offer it to him and to my brothers and sisters in Christ, not to cause division and not to bring them down, but to help to build them up. 
Pride causes you to disdain grace, but thanksgiving helps to build God's grace in your life. The third, the third point that Paul makes about what pride does in us is not just that it makes you judge you, not just that it causes you to disdain grace, but it keeps you from imitating Jesus. 1 Corinthians 4, 8 to 13 says, already you have all you, have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. He's talking about the, the guys who'd be brought into the Colosseum last, not for a race, but to be fed to the lions. So that's what he's talking about there. That's the imagery he's using. Like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And Paul describes the Corinthians ironically. He's not actually saying they've got all that they need, that they're really wise. He's being ironic here, like they think of themselves. The Corinthians held what was called an overrealized eschatology. They thought the benefits of heaven had all been given to them and they were just blessed, too blessed to have anything go wrong in their lives. And through Jesus and the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives, we do experience a down payment of heaven. We experience God's joy, his peace, his mercy, forgiveness, righteousness, unity in the church. But these are foreshadows of the glories of heaven and not the completion of those things. But the Corinthians were acting as if Paul's suffering, his hard work in the gospel, with his hands, his gentleness when persecuted, indicated that he actually wasn't quite as spiritual as them. I mean, they were blessed in their success, but he was over here and suffering for Jesus, and that meant he wasn't quite as, as spiritual as they were. And Paul corrected them, implying that he and the other apostles actually looked a lot more like Jesus than they did. In the apostles' weakness and poverty and homelessness and endurance through persecution, they looked a lot like Jesus' life. And by rejecting Paul for these reasons, they were actually in danger, not of growing closer to Christ, but of rejecting Jesus. The Corinthians wanted to be at home in this world but as James 4.4 4 succinctly states, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We have to beware of some things that sometimes get promoted and taught in Christian circles today that actually don't promote being like Christ, but they promote friendship with the world's values. I'm thinking specifically here of prosperity gospel and its offshoots, which teach that Christians are all supposed to be wealthy, or that the, if you're not healed, that there must be something wrong with your faith, or teaching that expects that Christians will never suffer. And all of these can sound triumphant, they can get you worked up into some kind of hype, but they forget that Jesus said that we're supposed to take up our cross and follow him. They forget that our lives are actually supposed to be modeled like Jesus and stay in the cross. Listen, living the values of heaven will never make you popular on earth. And so if you are popular here, you might ask yourself, have I really adopted the values of heaven or have I adopted the values of the world? When we read the Bible, we have this tendency to want to identify with the heroes of the story and often with the author, like Paul. 
But when we read this passage, it's really hard to identify with Paul, isn't it? He says things like, I'm buffeted. We're like those who are displayed, like the very last of all, like we're going to our deaths. We're homeless. We're impoverished. We often don't have enough to eat or drink. We don't have enough clothes. It's hard to identify with that in our lives, isn't it? Because even if we're not the wealthy of of our culture, we're wealthy in our culture. And we have much that we should be thankful for. And we want a Christianity often, as a result of that, that makes us blessed, but we want to redefine the word blessed. We don't want it to mean what Jesus said, blessed are you when people despise you. We don't want it to mean what Jesus said when he said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We don't want it to mean what Jesus said when he said, blessed are the poor. We don't want that kind of blessing. (laughs) We want to redefine the word blessed by the world's standards and then say, I'm blessed by God. But the Apostle Paul won't allow that. And even when we admit that we must take up our cross, our lives still look much more settled and stable and comfortable than what Paul describes of his own life in these verses. We're blessed, we're filled, we're comfortable. And if we're not careful, that could also blind us from our deep need to be continually transformed into the image of Jesus from the inside out so that we look more like him and less like the world. This doesn't mean that we're all going to look exactly like Paul, impoverished and homeless. Perhaps if we were more like our Lord, though, we too would appear more like the scum of the world, which is a word that means like when you do your dishes and that nasty stuff that floats on top of the water from your dishes, that's what that word scum of the world means. Or, or like uh, the off-scouring, he means the, the mud that gets stuck to the bottom of your shoes and you have to scrape it off. Maybe we'd look more the world like those things if our lives were more like Jesus and we were saying we're blessed in Jesus and we're not just blessed in the world. This isn't a condemnation for the blessings that God has given you in your life, but it is a call for us to ask, if my life looks like the world, then am I really like Jesus or have I just redefined the word blessed? God help us to not be so prideful that we cannot see when we don't look like Jesus. Finally, you shouldn't be puffed up because pride is all talk and it's no walk. 1 Corinthians 4, 14 to 21, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Paul didn't want to shame them, but he wanted to point out that Christianity is a lot more than what you say and if you sound good, and that it's actually imitating people who imitate Jesus. That's why he was going to go back to them. It's why he was sending Timothy to them, so they could be reminded this isn't just about what you say with your lips, but it's about are you following Jesus and being transformed into his image. Discipleship requires instruction, yes, but it also requires a pattern of life to imitate and some of the people in Corinth were puffed up because they were acting like Paul wouldn't return he said I will return and when I do I will search out not the talk of people but the power and here he doesn't mean power as in miracles 
He means again what we read in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. He would go and find out if their lives actually reflected the cross of Christ and that they were more than just words. He would go and find out if their lives were actually causing them to be changed into the image of Jesus and pushing others to change to be more like Jesus or if they just talked a big game. And the question that this might cause us to ask is this. Is your Christianity just a lot of hot air? We should be candid with ourselves because it would be much better to be candid like the Apostle Paul said to them, do you want me to come with a rod of correction or with a spirit of gentleness? And so if we want a spirit of gentleness in our midst, then what we should do is be honest and candid with ourselves and with the Holy Spirit and allow good correction to come into our lives. And that means we ask the question, is my Christianity more than just a lot of hot air? Do you take your Christianity for granted? It's just a thing you do. Or are you being transformed to the image of Christ? Does your life affect others to make them want to imitate Jesus more, pushing them into a deeper relationship with Jesus that brings them into life change? Or is it just a lot of talk? Is your life in Christ worth imitating? Or would someone imitating you not really be imitating Jesus at all? They'd be imitating the world with a few Christian labels stuck onto the side of it. These are the questions that Paul wants us to ask, the scripture call us to ask, because Pride will keep us from dealing with the reality of where we're at. And yeah, it can make you feel a little bit better for a moment, but in the long run, it leaves you puffed up and empty without substance, like that jelly donut that's not actually a jelly donut. It's a hollow donut. It's an air donut. Or like those chocolates at Easter that have nothing on the inside except disappointment. And that's how pride leaves us, divided and disappointed because what God wants to do is fill us with Jesus. But if we are prideful, we disdain his grace, we don't look like Jesus, we push him away and we also push others away because we don't want others who look like they're imitating Christ too close to us because then other people might notice, I'm not really as much like Jesus as all my hot air would lead them to believe. I'm gonna ask if, um, Pastor Camille Grace, if you can come. Pride often gets in the way of our growth in Christ, and it gets in the way of unity as a church, and we may not realize it, but our jelly donut could be filled mostly with air. And the last verse calls us to examine ourselves for this kind of pride. Do we wanna wait and be corrected at the last day at the judgment? Do we want an elder in, the, in spiritual things to have to correct us for our pride, or do we want to allow the word of the cross to change us? Pride is sneaky, and we can easily be puffed up by our own preferences and our own selfishness. And if you're judgy and complaining rather than giving thanks, and your life doesn't look like Jesus, you're not changing to be more like him, you've probably got some pride going on that's causing you to evaluate yourself based on the world's standards and not God's standards, and it feels like it's comforting for a moment because you don't have to go through the process of change that is uncomfortable. You don't have to repent, but in the long term, it leaves you empty. And so today, I want to call on you to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. If there's pride in your life, to confess that and admit that. And I, I was thinking, 
in January, we had the Teen Challenge Choir here, and I was just watching and observing as they were here in, in the services. And in both services at different times, there were several young men who got up and they came and they, they knelt down. They were sitting on this side. They came and they knelt down. And then a couple of the young men would get up and come and pray for them. And then they'd go back to their seat. Another young man might get up and come to the front and pray. I was just noticing the, the sincerity and the surrender of their hearts. They seemed totally unconcerned with what any of us thought about them. Didn't care couldn't have cared less. They wanted to respond to Jesus. Nobody had given them an altar call. Nobody had said, if, if God's working in your heart, come forward. Nobody had done that. They just responded and couldn't have cared less. Their pride was out of the way so they could just respond to God. Now, there's nothing that makes this place up here more full of God's presence than anywhere else, right? God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And so you don't get closer to God by coming to a particular location. But often what happens is that we fail to respond to the word of the Lord because of our pride. We're too settled in our comfort. We don't want to be, we don't want to look like Paul, like there's suffering, there's pain, there's need for change, there's growth. We don't want to look like that. We don't want to have to go through that. We don't want other people, uh, that person on the other side of the sanctuary might think there's a big problem in my life if I, if I respond to what God is doing. And I don't, I don't want that. I don't want anybody to think that about me. And Paul says, who cares? It's a small thing if I'm judged by you or by any human court. I know who my judge is. And I'm going to be right with him. We're concerned. And sometimes that concern over what people think actually keeps us from dealing with God and responding to him when there is a problem. So we're going, I don't want them to think there's a big problem, but there is. And the only person that hurts is you. It hurts you because you're unwilling to lay down your pride and allow God to work in the places of your heart where you've got hidden sin because you were too arrogant to let God change you or, or you've, got, you've got judginess and, and you've been judgmental with people and you've been legalistic and angry and, and you think that, that others are doing it wrong but the person you're hurting is, it's you. You're hurting you and you're causing division and, and you won't let God deal with you because you're too concerned that other people might think something about me. Listen, today, I'm not calling you to, to, to do anything except what God is asking you to do. If there's a sense that in your life there's, there's something that God wants to deal with, there's pride, or, or you want to say, God, search my heart and know me. I don't want there to be anything that's getting in the way. Or you're saying to yourself, listen, I think that there's some ways that my life has looked more like the world than like Jesus, and I don't want that. I want to be done with that. I want to confess that and confront it today so that it can be over with, and I stop pushing Jesus away, disdaining the grace of God in my life, and I actually receive the gift that he wants to give to me to cleanse me and to make me right with him. So today, the, the closing will not be elaborate. It's going to be pretty simple. I'm going to pray in a moment. But if you need to deal with God, you deal with God. In fact, when I'm done praying, I'm not going to say anything else. It's going to be up to you to decide where you want to go. But I want you to respond how God is speaking in your heart to respond without concern about what anybody else around you thinks about what you're doing. Who cares? They're not your judge. God's your judge. Deal with him this morning. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you. And we thank you today for the grace that you've given us through your son, Jesus. We all need that. And Lord, we all recognize in our lives that too often we're, we're prideful. And we see the signs and the symptoms of that in our hearts. 
Lord, when we judge others with a heart of comparison and, and anger and when we are boastful about our own works, thinking that they belong to us, thinking that our gifts are our own, when we fail to give thanks and instead we're angry and upset because somebody didn't recognize us or somebody didn't give us what we were due. Lord, when, when we push Jesus away because we're more afraid to deal with you openly and honestly now than we are about how you'll deal with us later. Lord, when our lives don't look like an imitation of Jesus, they look like an imitation of the world. Lord, we pray for your forgiveness when our pride gets in the way of the work you want to do. We pray that you would remove that pride from us. We pray that, God, there'd be a humble responsiveness in our hearts, that we wouldn't be prevented. Lord, we hear what your word says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with him. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to open the door. Help us not to leave the door closed because we wanted to appear like we were well put together spiritually. Give us your help, Lord, to deal honestly and candidly with our pride. In Jesus' name.